If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. In recent years, drag is an art form that's enjoyed a lot of success and a little controversy. Yet, as Jacob Bloomfield argues in his recent book, Drag A British History, it has in fact entertained British audiences for many decades, stretching back to the music halls of the Victorian era. Matt Elton caught up with Jacob to find out more. So Jacob, your new book covers British drag, which is a subject about which you've said that there's a kind of a cultural amnesia. And I want to get into some of those reasons a bit later on. But before we do, I thought it was worth spending a bit of time on some definitions. It's specifically the British phenomenon we're talking about here. And are we defining drag as being female impersonation? Is that right? Yes. So my book covers male drag specifically, although if there is any indication that people I discuss would have identified as anything other than what we call a cis man that I respect their gender identity. But for the most part, we're talking about men dressing as women. And so in the past, I think the traditional definition of drag was men dressing as women and women dressing as men for the purpose of performance. But I think 
now, and you can use this definition, this definition can apply to the past as well. But now I would say that drag can be more readily defined as a type of performance that comments on gender. And your book primarily focuses on the years between 1870 and 1970. But before we get into that period, I thought it was worth maybe just sketching out what listeners might need to know in terms of the cultural backstory. What happened before 1870 that helps us understand what came next? Well, so prior to 1870, you have, for example, in the early 18th century, the so-called Mali subculture that comes to the attention of the public and some commentators. So the Mali subculture were feminine men who often cross-dressed, and they would basically get together, often in public houses or private homes, and have what we might call today drag balls, and this would involve them cavorting and drinking and partying and having sex with one another. And, you know, this was also connected to sex workers and, as I indicated before, other members of the demimonde from at least the early 18th century. And this came to public attention both because people could see these people in places like London, but also there were some notable police raids of Mali houses, which were venues where Mali's congregated. So basically what the significance of all of that is from at least the 18th century, there's this cultural idea that men wearing women's clothing and generally men behaving effeminately indicates uh, sexual acts or, you know, a pattern of sexual behavior. And I'm not saying that everyone thought this. It certainly wasn't a ubiquitous idea, but this idea was in the air from at least the 18th century in Britain, you know, that if you were an effeminate man or if you were a cross-dressing man, you weren't merely a man cross-dressing. It indicated a type of character or kind of persona. And that's important in the history of cross-dressing performance and drag performance, which I talk about. And I wanted to talk about the 1870s specifically. What was it about that decade and that period that saw the flowering of drag as an art form. So an important aspect of my book is that you can't extricate the history of drag from the history of popular culture more widely. And, you know, I think often people kind of discuss drag as though it's its own separate phenomenon because it's supposedly underground or spoken about in hushed tones. And so it's kind of siloed away from the rest of popular culture. And I'm sort of saying that the fortunes of drag are tied to the fortunes of popular culture more widely and vice versa. Drag was often at the forefront of cultural trends that were happening. And you can often track cultural trends through looking at drag. So, for example, in the second half of the Victorian period, you have theater coming into its own as sort of the dominant cultural form. You could say it's kind of more of a cultural touchstone than, for instance, novels, for example. You have the growth of the music hall, 
And with that, you have the growth of drag performance. And this is moving beyond your question a bit. But my argument is that, again, drag was at the forefront of cultural trends. So as theater grows in the second half of the 19th century, so does drag. When pantomime, of course, starts to develop in the second half of the 19th century, you have drag at the forefront of that with the pantomime dame eventually becoming kind of the main character of pantomime performance. When early film starts to come into its own at the turn of the century, you have drag at the forefront of that. Radio, we often think about drag as a visual medium, but drag was on radio, gramophone, record. So drag is really at the forefront of all these cultural trends. And it's really mainstream. It's right at the heart of British culture across all these decades. Is that fair to say? Yes. And I think it's interesting. There's this sort of paradox whereby people, there's a stereotype about British culture that, you know, nothing entertains British people more than a guy putting on a dress, right? But then there's also this understanding or received wisdom as drag being taboo. So I'm sort of in a weird way, going back to that first stereotype and saying, no, actually, British people did love (laughs) seeing a guy put on a dress. And it was all people from all sorts of all walks of life, queer people, straight people, conservative people, progressive minded people, the working classes, the middle classes, people from all up and down the country. So drag was really particularly between 1870 and 1970 a mass cultural form that everyone enjoyed, no matter what their cultural background. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Going back to the earlier part of that period you just mentioned, you explore the stories of two people. There's George Galvin, who I think used the stay name Dan Lino, and Arthur Lucan. Can you just talk a bit about those individuals and what their story tells us about this wider story? 
Yes. So Dan Lino and Arthur Lucan both come up in my chapter on dames. And I think they're interesting. You know, we have this view of the dame as, you know, it's this kind of slapstick character. So I should say up front, if you don't know what a dame is, it's often a an older woman character played by a man. And it's meant to be a comic character often. We see the dame in pantomime, and, you know, that's often a child's first experience of theater in Britain, is seeing the pantomime dame in the Christmas pantomime. But also the dame has uh, broken out of pantomime as well and uh, starred in other productions. So Dan Lino was probably the most popular entertainer in late 19th century Britain. He was possibly most famous for his Drury Lane pantomimes where he played the dame and he sort of elevated the dame character he used sort of a stanislavski-esque techniques anticipating stanislavski actually because for him the dame wasn't merely the slapstick character you know he did use slapstick performance he was a very talented physical comedian he was also a champion clog dancer which was a northern athletic pastime in the 19th century so he was a really robust physical performer and he also imbued his dame characters with a sense of pathos they were fully realized characters he wasn't referencing the fact that he was a man playing a woman observers colleagues of his said that it you know his characters were like what dan leno would have been if he was that woman. You know, again, anticipating Stanislavski. So Dan Lino kind of elevated the dame character. Scholars have called it the believable dame. And then sort of the heir to that is a person named Arthur Lucan. Arthur Lucan's heyday was the interwar period and the post-Second World War period. He died in the mid 1950s, he actually died, Arthur Lucan, before he was due to go on stage. He died uh, very fittingly in the clothing of old Mother Riley while he was waiting in the wings to go on stage. And this was fitting because, you know, if Lino was committed to his Dane characters, Lucan took that to the next level. He had a radio show. He would show up to the radio show in full old Mother Riley garb. He was in a film with Bela Lugosi. Funnily enough, and Arthur Lucan sort of freaked out Bela Lugosi because Arthur Lucan would present himself to Bela Lugosi while the cameras were off in character as old Mother Riley. And so he was very committed to this character. He almost didn't have a persona really outside of this character. And he, like Lino, was one of the most popular performers in Britain. He had a hugely popular film series and hugely popular stage shows, as I said, radio show, gramophone records. He had a whole media empire, and uh, his wife, Kitty McShane, played Old Mother Riley's daughter, and that was almost the most normal part of their relationship. They had a very tempestuous offstage relationship for, you know, he kept on trying to go solo, and he was, like, kind of her meal ticket, so she would rope him back in, oftentimes by physical force he tried to in one theater where he tried to go solo she attempted to burn down 
that theater. So a very uh, tempestuous offstage relationship. And also, I should say, Arthur Lucan's films, again, looking at this sort of elevation of the Dame character, the films and the stage shows as well, and the radio shows, often had a kind of left-wing message. For instance, in the film Old Mother Riley MP, Old Mother Riley runs for parliament against her former boss, and the former boss is also a landlord, so double enemy of the working class. And Old Mother Riley runs on a platform of universal employment, for example. So in that chapter on the dames, I'm trying to say, yes, you know, you have like kind of superficial slapstick dames like that continues from the 19th century through to now. But the dame is more than just this sort of clown figure. There have actually been, you know, quite artistic portrayals of the dame. And at the time, people like this were doing these kind of acts. What was the wider conversation that was going on around gender and sexuality? And how did drag feed into or change that, I suppose? So another reason why I begin the book in 1870 is because around 1869, 1870 is when you start to have sexual theorists and people who we would call sexologists, but sexual scientists, they start to discuss things like homosexuality, but they also pathologize cross-dressing and male femininity. So again, this idea that if you are a man wearing a dress, it's not just, you know, the singular act of wearing a dress. It indicates something about your persona, your mental state, your sexuality, etc., So this 1869-1870 moment is when cross-dressing first starts to become pathologized. And so I think that's another important turning point, which is why I start the book in 1870. But again, this idea is not ubiquitous. There were many people who, particularly seeing drag in a performance setting, there were many people who could see a drag show and, you know, Maybe it made them feel uncomfortable for reasons that they couldn't necessarily articulate. Or maybe they thought that drag represented homosexuality and they liked that. You know, we often think of, oh, the people who thought drag represented homosexuality were appalled. But there was a whole nother group of people who enjoyed that. For instance, I bring up letters written to a periodical called Society and a periodical called London Life. And I think a few others. And these sort of publications acted as sort of uh, historical message boards, right? People would write to them and respond to each other. And so people were writing in with, in some cases, with their sexual fantasies about drag. So it was clear that for some people, they understood that drag was connected to sexuality and it turned them on. And as I said, some people were appalled by that. And then there are lots of people who didn't connect dragged to sexuality and they just saw it as an entertaining night at the theater and they didn't think about the performance after five minutes and i think these people are often the most interesting people to consider and unfortunately you know the people who hated drag and the people who love drag are most represented in the historical record but i think for the vast majority they would have seen a drag show and not thought much of it and you know Why would they? If you think about it, it's sort of weird how we see 
a drag performance and we infer so much about that person's, that performer's offstage life. You know, you don't see somebody playing a medical doctor on stage and think, well, uh, that person must have wanted to be a doctor since childhood and they have all these hangups, blah, 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 blah. So I think it's quite natural that a lot of people would watch a drag show and just think that was fun and not think anything of it afterwards. Hmm. Moving ahead to the 1920s, you write about Splinters, which I think I'm right in saying started out as a theatre production, but then became... One of the first UK talking pictures, I think. What made it so successful and so popular? So going back, Splinters was a, the name of a show. They actually had several shows called Splinters and later film series. And these shows and these films were starred a troupe called La Rouge et Noir. And La Rouge et Noir were called that because that was a reference to the colors of the First Army in the First World War. And so some of the members of the First Army formed a troop, and this troop performed drag shows for their fellow soldiers during the First World War. And this is something that's been talked about, probably not enough in my opinion, but talked about quite a bit by historians and others. This idea that uh, entertain their fellow soldiers, some of the servicemen dressed up in drag and did these drag shows. But what's interesting about La Rouge et Noir is they parlayed this to the British public after the war. So after the war, they got together with the backing of the war office, and they also performed at Windsor Castle, for example. And so they had the backing of the military, and they performed these drag shows. The shows were often called splinters or something related to that, and they performed them all across the country. And eventually, they spun these shows off into a film series. And the first film, called Splinters, <laughs> you can watch it on BFI Player, actually, if you're interested. And the Splinters film was one of the very first. It came out in late 1929 and kind of was more widely released by early 1930. And it was one of the very first motion picture talkies produced in Britain. I think it was... Possibly, I'm always wary about saying something was the first, something was the second, but it was probably the second British-made talkie after the Hitchcock film Blackmail, which came out a few months prior. So Hitchcock beat them just by a little bit. But La Rouge et Noir, these ex-servicemen drag performers, you know, they weren't only in Splinters, they were the stars. So that speaks to their huge popularity in the interwar period that these ex-servicemen performers they were so popular so as to warrant this film made about them and what's interesting is you know i think on the surface one might say well they were allowed to get away with this because they were ex-servicemen and that gave them masculine credibility basically and that's totally true people did come to the shows because in part they were interested they had heard about this phenomenon of concert parties where servicemen performed for one another and so these la rouge et noir shows were seen as a way to connect with soldiers experiences but not like the bloody bits it's <laughs> just the fun concert party bits so there was an educational aspect there as well but you know, what's most interesting is the reviews I read about La Rouge et Noir. They talked about the performer's wartime service, but they also talked in very grand terms about how sexy they thought these guys 
were. They bring up, you know, I remember one review, it goes into detail about one performer's white powdered arms and perfectly manicured fingernails and positively pretty little gestures of femininity. So the reviews really gush about how sexy they think these guys are. And part of the fun is to go to these shows, particularly if you are a, what we would call today, a heterosexual man. Part of the fun is going to these shows and being beguiled and bewitched by these sexy ex-servicemen drag performers. And then, you know, they take off their wigs and you sort of snap out of it. But that doesn't cause a crisis of sexuality. It's just part of the fun of the performance. Does this willingness to be beguiled show a change in society since the 1870s? Well, I think it definitely shows that at the time La Rouge et Noir were doing their shows in the interwar period. And, you know, you can also go back to the 1870s. Again, there was no sort of ubiquitous idea about what drag meant. So particularly when it came to drag and sexuality or homosexuality. So again, you know, as I said, there was this cultural idea in the air that if you were a man who cross-dressed, especially habitually, that indicated certain sexual behaviors or maybe even a sexual category of identity. But again, this idea wasn't widespread. And one of the big arguments of my book, one of the big arguments is that drag did not just mean one thing. Some people were connecting it to same-sex desire or what we would call homosexual identity or queer identity. But again, this wasn't ubiquitous. So I think that this reaction to La Rouge et Noir shows that not everyone was connecting, particularly drag on stage, to what they would call sexual immorality. And this idea was certainly out there, as I say in the book, around the time La Rouge et Noir were staging their successful shows and doing their films. There was, for example, a police raid on a drag ball in a Holland Park Avenue in the 1930s. It's called the Lady Austin's Camp Boys case, if you want to read about it. And so these police went undercover to infiltrate this drag ball in Holland Park Avenue and eventually arrested the attendees of the drag ball, including the host, Lady Austin. Uh, and also, for instance, there's the Lady Malcolm Servants Ball, which was a fancy dress ball held annually for domestic servants in London. And during the interwar period, the ball initiated a policy whereby they said no man impersonating a woman will be allowed at the ball because they were nervous about these effeminate men using the ball as an excuse to come and drag and cavort there and possibly pick up sexual liaisons there. So there was this idea that male cross-dressing indicated sexual immorality, but particularly on the stage, that idea was not totally widespread across all sections of society. These ideas of there being space for complexity in drag, but also sometimes contradiction, really comes through in the section on the 1960s. When you talk about Danny LaRue, who I think is probably a performer who people might be familiar with, but I had no idea that he embodied, he occupied this kind of contradictory space. Can you talk about that a bit? 
Yeah, of course. So Danny LaRue, again, one of the most popular performers of his day. If you speak to some people of a certain age, they might say that Danny LaRue was ubiquitous on television and stage. He also had a film as well, Our Miss Fred, made in the early 1970s. It didn't do very well. But so yeah, Danny LaRue was one of the most popular performers of the 1960s and 70s. He performed in, I believe, three Royal Variety performances. He had his own club in Mayfair. Interestingly enough, during the time Danny LaRue had his club in Mayfair from 1964 to 1972, there was also, I forget when this happened, I think it was the late 1960s, another drag performer named Ricky Renee also opened up a club in uh, Covent Garden. So there was a time when you had at least two drag artist-fronted clubs in central London in the late 1960s. But yeah, Danny LaRue was hugely popular at his own club, on TV all the time, participated in all these Royal Variety performances. Royalty celebrities would go to his club. He had a top 40 single, all these accolades. And interestingly... He was sort of a cultural touchstone for people who were anxious about 1960s permissiveness. So Danny LaRue presented himself as a culturally conservative figure. He would often mock facets of the permissive society. So for instance, in the book, I talk about his show Danny LaRue at the Palace, where he spends the first part of the show really cutting into people like Mick Jagger and John Lennon and Yoko Ono and people like that. He makes fun of Mick Jagger's feminine dress without much self-awareness. Also without much self-awareness, Danny LaRue, in his autobiography, which is called From Drags to Riches, he says that he doesn't like to be called a drag queen or drag artist, which is (laughs) quite interesting. But anyway, and he... In interviews, he goes off on how he doesn't like the sex shops that are springing up in Soho. He thinks celebrities should behave themselves or face the consequences. He doesn't like that the Catholic Church has abandoned the Latin mass. (laughs) He doesn't like homosexuality, even though he was himself gay. He just wasn't publicly open until later in his career. So even early in his career, I think his biographer says his audience consists of no one under 35 and many over 50. So he's quite known for appealing to, I guess, if you want to put it crassly, blue haired old ladies often. And he presents himself as this conservative figure. And also he's casting himself against the kind of kitchen sink drama of the 60s and 70s. He's casting himself against plays such as, for instance, Look Back at Anger and things like that. He's casting himself against particularly the sexual economy of Soho, like Raymond's Review Bar, even though LaRue's club was formerly uh, Paul Raymond's strip club. And he is kind of chummy with Paul Raymond as well, offstage. And also in his autobiography, he'll say stuff like, Oh, I hate camp people. So anyway, my friend Liberace helped me design my club. So he is a mess of contradictions, but he presents himself as this 
conservative figure. He says that I just do kind of light variety entertainment. I'm not into message theater. I don't have any messages to give my audiences. So he's, despite being a drag artist, he is a cultural touchstone for people who feel a sense of anxiety or ambivalence around the permissive society. And to sort of draw things to the present, I think if people hadn't heard this conversation or hadn't come to your book, they might feel like this was a moment when drag was sort of newly entering the mainstream. You've got things like RuPaul's Drag Race, which has been a huge international phenomenon, and you've got drag hitting the headlines in a way that I don't remember it doing, certainly not in recent years. But I think you say in the book that although that might be true, it's not the first time that this has happened. Is that right? Yeah. So thank you for asking that question. It's quite funny. And I'm sure lots of historians, you know, can relate to this kind of cultural amnesia as it relates to the topics they cover. But in the book, I talk about how in 1870, when the word drag, meaning cross-dressing, first becomes popularized, the first time the word drag is printed in the British newspaper to mean cross-dressing is in 1870 in reference to the trial of two drag performers in Bolton and Park. So in 1870, you have people saying like, drag is suddenly becoming popular soon. You know, everyone will be doing it. And I point to throughout the book, commentators saying drag is suddenly a popular thing. And, you know, into 1970, when people are saying, oh, you know, drag is more popular than ever now. And, you know, you have media commentators in 1970 referring to a drag boom. So, yeah, you have throughout the period I talk about commentators saying drag is suddenly popular, drag is suddenly popular. And then again, you know, once RuPaul's Drag Race becomes popular, drag is suddenly popular. So I'm not saying that drag isn't having a cultural moment now. I don't think my book is ever contrarian. And I didn't set out to make a contrarian, well, actually guy book. I'm just sort of trying to situate things we associate with drag now. I'm trying to situate those concepts in their historical contexts. So for instance, this idea today that drag is connected to queer culture, where does that come from? The idea that drag is suddenly popular. Now I'm trying to situate that in a cultural context. So I'm not trying to tell people that their ideas about drag currently are wrong. I'm just trying to contextualize those ideas. And I really, the reason why I start the book in 1870 is because I think that's sort of where our modern perception of drag comes from. So the second half of the 19th century, 1870, is really when you start to see tropes that we associate with drag today spring up, like, for instance, glamour drag, like the pantomime dame. And, you know, I could have maybe started with the Elizabethan boy players, for example, but I don't necessarily think that you can draw a straight line from the Elizabethan boy players to drag in the present, whereas I think you can draw a line from the kind of drag that Bolton and Park we're doing the two female impersonators who are arrested in London in 1870. I think you can draw a straight line from the glamour drag they were doing to drag today. 
And I suppose at a time when drag is making headlines for some of the backlash that's happening, some of the protests against it, is it important that people see this as just being an art form like any other, like being a mainstream art form the same way that we might consider comedy or film or anything else? Or is that overstating it? Drag in the past, as I said, it was a mass cultural form. It appealed to audiences from all walks of life and it took many forms. It could be family entertainment easily, you know. And in fact, when the Lord Chamberlain's office, who were in charge of stage censorship in Britain from 1737 to 1968, when they approved a play, that play could then be seen by someone of any age unless the theater made some sort of preconditions. They didn't have like an adults-only certificate or things like that. So drag shows of all kinds were being seen by people of all ages in the 20th century and in the 19th century. So the fact that drag is exclusively adult entertainment is just bunk, basically. It can be for adults. It can be for kids. It's an art form like any other. And, you know, the reason why drag is still around and, in my opinion, thriving is because drag adapts. I'm not wistfully waxing nostalgic about drag in the past. I think drag in the present is great. You know, you see more avant-garde forms of drag. Today, the definition of drag, as we indicated in the beginning, has become more capacious and inclusive. So you can have, for instance, cisgender women drag queens. And many of those people are some of my favorite drag performers. And, you know, I think that's great. And the art form is adapting. It's a capacious art form. It adapts with the times. So it's an art form like any other. And it can't just be essentialized as, for instance, dirty adult entertainment. That was Jacob Bloomfield, a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Constance and honorary research fellow at the University of Kent. His book, Drag, A British History, is out now, published by University of California Press. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden.